easily give up the habit of power, and intrigued at home and abroad to restore himself to royal favour. Henry's changes of front were his reactions to the news, often distorted, that reached him about Wolsey's manoeuvres. Much the same is true of the Duke of Norfolk, who appears in Cavendish's pages as a monster of duplicity, sometimes honey-tongued, sometimes hostile and overbearing. This again is a one-sided picture. Norfolk was a double-crosser, but Woolsey knew this. The two men might greet each other with every appearance of friendship, as Cavendish reports, but the real conversation would take place behind closed doors, or standing in the bay of a window where no one, not even a gentleman usher, could overhear. Cavendish is not always a reliable witness. Sometimes, out of loyalty to his master, he professes ignorance where it is likely that he knew the truth. According to him, Wolsey steadily opposed the divorce. Yet Cavendish was with the cardinal at Southwell when Brereton and Ryothesley arrived, bringing with them a document for Wolsey to sign. The document was the petition of the clergy and nobility of England to the Pope, urging him to annul the king's marriage. Woolsey, unlike Sir Thomas More and John Fisher, duly signed and sealed. His principles were not as unshakable as Cavendish would have us believe, and although the gentleman usher was probably in ignorance of the true nature of the document on the occasion of its delivery, he must surely have known more about it by the time he came to write his life. It is not surprising that Cavendish learned the habit of concealing unpleasant truths. He knew from his own experience that men who would not compromise did not live long in Henry's England. He describes his own duplicity over the question of Woolsey's last words. These obviously contained some phrase, carefully omitted by Cavendish, so offensive to the King's Majesty that it was better not to have heard it, and Cavendish and Sir William Kingston accordingly combined to assure the Privy Council that they had heard nothing. The fact that Cavendish and Kingston died in their beds, unlike so many of the characters in the life, is a tribute to their discretion. There are other occasions on which Cavendish is misleading. His accounts of the Battle of Pavia and the Bohemian Revolt are extremely confused and inaccurate, and even when he is dealing with something of which he had first-hand knowledge, his memory sometimes betrays him. For instance, he describes how a bill was brought into Parliament to condemn Wolsey of high treason. What was so skilfully attacked by Cromwell that the Cardinal's enemies had to drop it and instead start a legal action against Wolsey for Premonier. In fact, the Premonier action had been initiated in October 1529 and the bill was not introduced into the House of Commons until the following December. These lapses, intentional and unintentional, mean that Cavendish's account of Woolsey cannot always be taken at face value. And although by far the greater part of the life is reliable, it remains, as Professor Pollard said, the classic example of history as it appears to a gentleman usher, a tale which unfolds on the surface of events and rarely probes below them. And yet, in spite of, and in some ways because of this, the life remains a classic, for Cavendish has the power to recreate a scene such as Northumberland's arrest of Woolsey at Caywood, so vivid 
that we feel we are there. He writes in prose which, well, sometimes clumsy, frequently rises to magnificent heights. Perhaps most engaging of all, Cavendish himself emerges, a kindly, loyal, and affectionate figure, puzzling in his gross old head how to find words to describe those far-off days of splendid dissolution through which he had lived. Cavendish entered Woolsey's service in the early 1520s, too late to attend the cardinal at the Field of the Cloth of Gold, which would so much have delighted him as a lover of pomp and ceremony, and served his master faithfully as gentleman usher until the end came at Leicester Abbey. After Woolsey's fall, he retired from public life, sickened, perhaps, by his experience of it, and spent his time quietly either at Glemsford in Suffolk, his old home, or at Spain's Hall, which belonged to...